Welcome to Vacation Rental Success, the show that features interviews with industry experts, successful vacation rental owners, and more, all geared toward helping you make it happen. Here's your host, Heather Bayer. And welcome to another episode of the Vacation Rental Success Podcast. My my name's Heather Bayer, and I am delighted to be back with you as always. Now, for anybody who's listening for the first time, I, I just realized recently that I, I open all my podcasts in the same way, but I, I don't actually say what the podcast is about and and realize some, somebody mentioned to me recently that they'd come upon the podcast for the first time. And they started listening from the most current episode, which is what a lot of people do. And I didn't really explain at the outset when they, when, what they should expect. So I'm going to come up with a new introduction that you'll probably hear next week. But for now, for anybody who is new to the Vacation Rental Success podcast, what you're going to hear is a lot of information on how a vacation rental business is is carried out and how a successful vacation rental businesses work, regardless of what type of business it is, whether you have a single home that you rent out on Airbnb, or if you have multiple units and you spread them out on Airbnb and HomeAway and VRBO and Booking.com, or whether you're a property manager, you're going to find something of interest in and amongst the Vacation Rental Success podcast episodes. Mostly I do interviews with industry experts. People have been around this business for a lot of years. Many of them started way back in the 1990s and some earlier than that. And they have seen every change that's happened in this industry over those years and have learned a lot from them. So I will interview really just about anyone and everyone who has expertise in this business and try and share that expertise with you. We don't sell anything on the podcast. Uh, we don't promote much except when we do the Vacation Rental Success Summit. Yes, we do promote that. And occasionally at the end of an episode, you'll find me promoting uh, our Vacation Rental Formula, which is the company that's owned by myself, my son, Mike, and Jason Beaton, who's a digital marketing expert in the vacation rental space. And in the vacation rental formula, we provide educational material for vacation rental owners, hosts, and managers. And that ranges from, you know, how, how to simple things like how to create a rental agreement, how to set up a blog and the types of things that you should write about, we talk about vacation rental safety and how to create an emergency plan. Just about everything you might think of, any topic related to the business, to the short-term rental business, we cover in the vacation rental formula. So you'll often hear me talk about VRF or the vacation rental formula, and that's what it is. And you can go to vacationrentalformula.com to find out a little more. So generally, I I'm doing interviews, but occasionally I will do a solo episode. And that's exactly what I'm doing today. Sometimes something bothers me, concerns me that I, I really want to share, or I have an experience of my own that, uh, that I want to talk about. 
And and that's that's the case today. So you're not going to hear any interviews. What you will hear at the end of this podcast, and this is something I'm going to be doing a little bit more often, is to focus on some of the suppliers to our industry. There are numerous suppliers ranging from the software that we use for for our reservation management to apps for helping you deal with uh, with cleaners to other resources that make operating a vacation rental company or a business and you know if you're if you're just operating one property you are in business and all these services and resources are there to help you make your vacation rental journey a lot easier however there is a caveat here that it seems like, and I've said this before, it seems like every day there's a new service provided. And usually that they've, they've stemmed from Airbnb. Somebody has been renting out their property on Airbnb. They've seen a gap in the market and they immediately want to fill it with the latest and the greatest app or resource. These things often don't last very long. So I hesitate in recommending anything unless it's been around for some considerable time has a lot of users and people are really excited and happy about the products. So over the course of the next however long I carry on doing this podcast, I'm going to be including some short interviews with the people behind some of these companies. You know, I'm not just not going to do an ad or a commercial for them, but I'm going to invite them along and give them some 10 or 15 minutes of airspace to talk about themselves, why they got into this business, why they are of value to vacation rental hosts and owners and property managers, and and give you the opportunity to hear the background to each of these businesses. So I'm talking to a number of, of different companies, founders of companies, to uh, to get more gen on them. So stay tuned to the end and uh, and take a listen to who I'm talking to today. So I'm talking today about polarized conversations. Um, we seem to live in this polarized world where for most people, the view they hold is absolutely the right one. And the opposing view is completely wrong. We see this every time we go onto um, Facebook and see these exchanges going on. This is not what it was like 10 years ago. Maybe people did hold, I mean, I'm sure people have always hold, held strong opinions. But what happened to compromise and working things out to the benefit of everyone and understanding that some people hold some views and they may not be the same as yours. I don't know. And I'm not, I'm talking generalizations here, but really, you know, what we're seeing on the world stage it's encapsulated in our own niche of vacation rentals, you know, particularly in the Facebook groups. And that's where I've got a lot of this material today. I mean, these Facebook groups are, are spaces for owners and hosts to unload their frustrations, to seek help and share experiences. But what so often happens is this polarizing effect with people coming down strongly on one side or the other. And occasionally resorting to insults, which to me is you know completely unhelpful, incredibly rude. Now, I rarely weigh in on the arguments, on the arguments these often become. 
because entering the fray is not something I'm comfortable with. You know, confrontation is not my thing. It never has been and has been. And I, I also fully believe that everyone has the right to their own opinion and in upholding them. And I also think we should respect the views of others, even if they don't match our own. Hard to do in, in some cases if we're looking from a more global perspective, I know. But, uh, but sure, cer certainly in our industry, people do have very strong opinions on certain things. But, you know, in the end, we've all got the right to run our businesses in our own way, providing we stay within the law, of course. So talking about weighing in, because, you know, I've just said I don't do it, but this is my space. And if I can, <laughs> I can. So I want to raise today five of the most common topics that result in some of the lengthier threads with everyone weighing in with their opinions. And I'm going to take give my take on each one. And I'm not saying that my take is the right one for everyone. It's just what works for me, for my properties, my company. And it's how we consult with our new owners on some of the things that we believe they should do. Now, bear in mind that our location may lend itself to some differing policies some, that you may have. So, so keep that in mind as well. We, we all have different personas, the types of people that come to our properties and some policies that we use may not suit other demographics. So keep that in mind as well. As I say, I'm, I'm just giving you my take on these arguments because I'm too much of a coward to go into Facebook and do it there. So yeah, let's kick off. I've got five of these most common arguments that I just want to talk about. And the first one um, that always amuses me when it comes up because it really, it really has a polarizing response. And that's, do you, should you leave food in the cupboards? I know, I know. I can hear you out there saying, absolutely not. You don't leave any food in the cupboards. You have the most pristine fridge that you can ever imagine and clean and tidy, empty cupboards for the guests to come along and put their food in. I've seen some of the some of the responses on online. People say it's unhygienic, could be a liability issue. It's disgusting. It's an awful practice. How do you know someone hasn't spat in the ketchup bottle? Yes, I did see that one. How do you know someone hasn't spat in the ketchup bottle? Well, you don't actually. Nor do you know that somebody hasn't uh, taken one of those squeezy bottles you find at a hot dog stand at the end of the day and they've spat in all of them, but you're still going to go along and squeeze them onto your hot dog. However, I'm going to give you my perspective as as a guest and every guest is different. This is purely my perspective, my viewpoint. When I'm on vacation, particularly when I've it's a fly-to vacation, so I haven't got... Any foodstuffs, except tea bags, of course. I always carry my own tea bags. But I rarely take anything else. I'm a cook. I love, love to cook. So when I get to a vacation rental, the first thing I do is go into the cupboards and into the fridge and see what's been left. Because, you know, particularly if you're going to one of these, let's say a Caribbean location, where food is very, very pricey. I do not want to be going to the store to buy all my herbs and spices, to buy oils, to buy vinegars, to buy sugar, maybe flour. You know, these are the things I'm going to use to cook with. And if you're in a vacation rental, you want to use flour for some thickening. 
and you go to the store and have to buy a two and a half pound bag or two pound bag or whatever bags they come in. That is so annoying. And it gets very costly with the number of things that you do have to go and buy in terms of groceries. So when I'm on vacation, I love to have oils, vinegars, spices and herbs, some sauces. You know, I, I don't want to have to go out and buy a big bottle of hot sauce to then use two drops. It irks me when I have to do that. And, and that sometimes reflects on the vacation rental as a whole. Um, another example, I stayed in Amsterdam for the VRMA European conference a couple of years ago and I arrived late. I was on my own and navigated some really, really narrow streets to find my apartment and didn't go past any grocery stores. I knew there were some in the area, but I, I just wanted to get in. I wanted to make my cup of tea and maybe get a snack of some sort. It was um absolutely gorgeous apartment. And there was a note from the owner saying that they used, they used the apartment. When it wasn't rented, they, they used it. And there was, there were foodstuffs in the cupboard and in the fridge, some of which were opened. I was quite welcome to use any of them I wanted to. If I didn't, just to please, to, to ignore them. And there was plenty of space for anything that I was going to buy. There was a half carton of milk in the refrigerator and I was so happy with that because I could make a cup of tea and I could put some milk in it. I didn't even think for a moment that the host might have spat in that carton of milk. I smelled it to make sure it wasn't off and I looked at the sell-by date. Um, if I hadn't wanted to use it, nobody was making me. So you may get from this where I'm coming from on it uh, as a guest I really like to see some foodstuffs left behind for me so that I don't have to go out and, and buy them myself. Now, I appreciate the argument on the other side of the coin that, oh, do I? You know, I'm really thinking about it. And I've, I've been to one or two vacation rentals where I've opened the fridge and it's absolutely empty. There is nothing, not a thing. There's not a thing in the cupboards. I'd, I'd quite like to find tins of a cans of things, cans of beans or cans of tomatoes that previous guests may have bought and have left behind. That's super. Um, I don't have to go out and buy them. So I'm not sure I do appreciate the argument about leaving pristine uh, empty fridge. I do agree that you don't leave quarter bottles of ketchup and I have been in places where you open the fridge and that's all you find is these rows, rows of half half and less than half empty ketchup and mustard bottles. Now, I have no objection to half nearly full ketchup bottles and uh, relish and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm quite happy to have those there. And as I said, and reiterate now, if I don't want to use them, nobody's making. So that's me as a guest. So me as a property owner and what I tell my owners is it's entirely up to them. We don't leave perishable items things that are going to, you know, obviously going to go off, things that our guests might find useful, then I suggest that they, they, they leave them and, but they make a very, very clear statement in their um, welcome book. And that statement says there are some foodstuffs left in the refrigerator and in the cupboards that you may find useful. However, if you don't wish to use them, please I don't say feel free not to use them, but you know, somehow 
we can word it to say you don't have to use these things but just leave them pushed to one side and that's about it we don't ask guests to replace anything that they've used we just simply say it's there for your convenience i know i'm going to get argument on this one so i'm not going to convince those people who want to leave their pristine refrigerators and empty cupboards for me as a guest i'm i know i'm not going to convince you for that for those of you who who are on my side you're going to be nodding and saying yeah i do agree uh leave stuff for guests for their own convenience if they wish to use it that's my take on the food topic and you know maybe it's generational um i'm i'm thinking probably it is generational i was i was brought up in the 50s when frugality was still the key after the war and things were still in short supply you did not throw away anything i was brought up with this thing you know you you get to the bottom of every jar and every container because you never know when the, when you're going to get that stuff again so i'm yeah i'm pretty sure this is probably a generational thing so i you know chime in on the comments and let me know what you think um but please let's not let's not get argumentative over it the second one is how often do you wash comforters and you know when i came out to ontario um oh back in 1998 and came to 1997 i think came out to our first rental uh not ours we we rented a place there was a really uh, not very nice old comforter on on the bed all all the beds had these old comforters on them and they probably hadn't been washed for years you know there were sheets underneath them so we had we you know body then sheet then crappy old comforter um we didn't care we just slept under it and and i have to say while i'm talking about it i remember i can actually remember one place where the comforters were particularly smelly and i think we uh, we actually washed them uh, ourselves we took them to a laundromat and uh, and washed them um after we did that then we realized that that's why people don't wash their comforters because all the filling went to the corners and and it was just almost empty in the middle that was 20 odd years ago so things have changed duvets and covers were not readily available at that time so when we when we started our own property we brought our own duvets and covers over from the uk and we have always washed the duvet covers on every changeover my take on comforters if you use comforters then i think they should be washed i don't in fact my take is don't use comforters i know it's convenient but it's not convenient if you think you know you have to wash them after each after each use use duvets put covers over them take them off wash them on every changeover i use coverlets in the summer so they have sheets a blanket and a coverlet and i regularly launder the blankets and coverlets um bearing in mind that in the summer it's so hot most people just sleep with just a sheet over them anyway you may say that uh, as i saw on a on a comment on on a facebook uh, group post today which was on this topic and um, they they come up very very regularly and people saying oh how could you ever imagine not changing um a cover uh, after every guest but people don't a lot of people don't they don't have the 
opportunity to do or they say they they just can't do it because they don't have the resources available to do that laundry and and my take is that you just got to make those you've got to work around it somehow where whereas 20 years ago as i mentioned at the beginning there we were okay with a, a, an old and smelly comforter because we were much more tolerant then people are not tolerant anymore they expect resort and high class hotel practices to be used in vacation rentals and that does mean that duvet covers not necessarily the duvets but the duvet covers anything that might touch your skin is changed after each rental so the duvets themselves yes there's an argument that you should change out the duvets more regularly but my my thought on that is you know pillows do you wash your pillows after every use no you don't wash your pillows after every use you have you have a pillow protector and then a pillowcase over the top of that and you'd perhaps wash the pillow pillowcase after every on every changeover and the pillow protector every few weeks or every month or so and and that's the same with your duvets they can be dry cleaned every month or so some people would go for two or three months some maybe at the end of every season whatever works for you but uh, i've changed over all my properties now to duvets and uh, duvet covers so another polarizing argument and and this is one that uh, gets people talking about uh, what the nature of a business is and the question is would you give money back when a guest cancels because someone in their group is sick or indeed has died so for example the guest calls a week before their stay they booked six months ago I mean, you're not going to re-rent that week or very unlikely to re-rent it. But they call the week before the stay to say grandma isn't well and can't travel and she's possibly not going to last the week. So they have to cancel. Or my child has broken his leg, broke ankle, wrist, some bone. They've broken a bone and we won't, then they're not going to have any fun on vacation now with that broken bone. So we have to cancel. So it was interesting that I was looking at, uh, at a Facebook group this morning and exactly this question came up about Airbnb's extenuating circumstances policy. And I'm sure many, many people have come across this, that if you're renting a property through Airbnb, if a guest has an, what they call an exceptional circumstance or an extenuating circumstance, they will uh, ask to cancel and Airbnb will give them their money back. I believe they they do ask for some evidence, but not necessarily. In some of these cases I've heard of that, it, that, that Airbnb will take the guest's word as evidence that they have an extenuating circumstance that stops them from, from going. I have to say as a guest, you know, I, I, you've heard me say that I had to cancel my, my trip to Paris for VRMA Europe this year because my husband was in hospital. I just I just cancelled my Airbnb stay and lost my money. I did not even think because my reason being I I'd, I'd screwed up on my travel insurance and did not have cancellation. I just had uh, international medical cover and we'd selected the wrong policy when we bought it. Our fault and I take complete responsibility for that because I lost my airfare as well. 
there's, there's no way I would have got in touch with Airbnb and said, I have this extenuating circumstance. I want to cancel my vacation because I, I see it as my responsibility to take out travel insurance. And if something, I take that risk. If I don't buy that travel insurance, then I have taken the risk that I may lose money if something occurs. However, Airbnb is giving guests the idea that you don't have to do that. You don't have to take out travel insurance. All you have to do is get in touch with us and we'll cancel this for you and you get your money money back. That's that's not the reason I'm talking about this. This is because the argument that comes up with um, when when this question comes up, would you give money back when a guest cancels because someone in their group is sick or has died? One side says, you know, I'm running a business. If they have elected not to take out travel insurance, they have chosen to risk that something may happen and they will lose their money. And if travel insurance is is available, there is no reason why we should give money back for compassionate or extenuating circumstances. And then the other group is... It's saying, oh, it's so awful. These people are going through such a bad time as it is. We have to, uh, we have to bend over backwards for them and to refund all their money. My take is definitely here on the business side, providing that you make it very clear up front that that's going to be the case. And you make it clear in your terms and conditions under a cancellation policy what, what your policy stands for. Now, our policy within our company says that if you cancel within a certain period of time, you will get your money back if we are able to rent the same period. If we're able to rent just a portion of the period, then they'll get a portion of their rental rate back. And it very clearly says we strongly recommend that you purchase cancellation insurance that covers anything that might happen to prevent you from taking this vacation. If you choose not to purchase the travel insurance, you are at risk of losing your money should you have to cancel. So it's there, it's written in the terms and conditions. They sign that as the rental agreement. Yeah, I I have been tough in the past and and sometimes second guess myself because we had last year family cancel it was it was two in fact it was two families traveling together and the um, one member of one of the families passed away um, about three weeks before the vacation and they wanted to cancel and we said you know exactly as I've just mentioned in my terms in our terms and conditions yes we can we will, we will immediately open up the rental period for rebooking and if we're able to we will refund your money less a cancellation fee and we went ahead and did that and nobody booked that spot. So in fact, the, the, one of the families came and also a couple of the children from the other family came along and they, they actually used the week as a memorial week and, and had, as they told us, a really great time and they were glad they hadn't cancelled. However, at that time, it really got me thinking, you know, were we doing the right thing? Should we be more compassionate under these circumstances? And... Quite honestly, we had to sit back and evaluate it very pragmatically and say, look, we we offered travel insurance. It was there for them to use to protect their stay should something happen. They chose not to take out, not to spend 
the fairly insignificant amount of money to protect their trip. And they took that risk. And unfortunately, something happened and they weren't covered. So that is my take. As a business, you need to stick to your policies, providing you have given your guests every opportunity to take that protection themselves. It's a really tough one. The other thing is, is that because of the policies of Airbnb, because of many websites there are out there that tell you, uh, and forums that tell you how to cancel a vacation and get your money back, that there are, unfortunately, people who are going to use some of these excuses because they've been told that that's the way that they can cancel and get their money back. While, while I don't want to put everybody in that same bucket, there are people out there who are more than willing to tell untruths in order to get rebates and refunds. So next is pets. What should I charge for pets? Any discussion about pets, particularly service dogs, is bound to incite discussion and heated argument. I'm going to be fairly brief on this one because I have a very fixed attitude on pets and I'm not going, you know, and that's the way we operate within our company. We do not charge a fee, never have done for a pet. And here's my take. I would far prefer pets in my property than to have children because pets don't crayola on the walls. They don't eat spaghetti in tomato sauce on the sofa. And in general, they don't wet beds and they don't use matches to light candles and burn the place down, which is something that did happen. If you listen to the vacation rental safety episode I did with Justin Ford, uh, he talks about that particular situation happening. So no, we don't charge a fee. But this is completely up to you whether you want to charge a fee to, for, for guests to bring a pet. A couple of caveats here. Look at what your competition com competitors are doing. Are they charging fees? Are you creating a competitive edge by not charging a fee? You know, if you're in a very dog-friendly area where many properties accept pets, it could be that not charging a fee is going to bring more guests to you because you're going to be charging less money than others. And the other thing is, if you accept them, welcome them. Pet owners love their pets as much as many families love their children. They take great responsibility for them and they want to be welcomed and not just to be allowed to bring your pet with a long, long list of rules. So if you're going to accept pets, please welcome them. Leave a couple of old towels out, some dog bowls, some tennis ball, that sort of thing. Maybe some nice pet treats and your pet owners will love you. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about charging a fee for pets. Lastly, let's talk about damage deposits. These always raise a lot of discussion. Um, people do it in, in many different ways. And I, you know, just to give you some idea of what we do. We have never charged a damage deposit. And what, what I mean by that is that within our company, in the 15 years we've been operating, we have never physically taken a damage deposit prior to a guest stay and then refunded it afterwards. We've always, um, we've, we've been very trusting. It's worked for us. On a very odd occasion, we've had an issue in, in claiming 
from a guest, but you know, it's it's infinitesimal. It's less than 0.5% of our rentals that this ever happens to us. What we've done is taken an authorization on a credit card, which which actually really means nothing. But we tell guests we have an authorization on their credit card to charge them up to, it was $500. It's now gone up to $1,000 because you know, properties are of higher value these days. And and we're very clear that if, if there is damage that is not covered by our accidental damage protection plan, which I'll go into in a second, then uh, so, so non-accidental damage, then we will charge their card uh, up to that amount and we will provide them with full details and evidence of, of why we're making that claim. In fact, we very, very rarely make any claims whatsoever. Um, our accidental damage protection plan, this is, uh, we've been self-insuring for about four, five or six years now. And it is a, a compulsory payment that guests make that covers them for up to $2,500 worth of accidental damage. So should a, a child kick a football through a window, should somebody accidentally put a hot pan down on a countertop and burn a hole in it, those are some of the big claims we've had over the years, but maybe no more than one a year. And bearing in mind, we do you know, around 2,500 um, rentals every year, then it, it is a very, very small risk that we take with the self-insurance. A lot of uh, property management companies do this. It's, it takes away the need to collect damage deposits for accidental damage. The other thing is, is that it, uh, it, it ensures that guests let you know when something has, has, has occurred. Once again, on Facebook uh, recently, I saw a post from an owner who said that, uh, that, that they'd had a call from the guest to say that there was no need for the cleaner to go in because they'd done all the cleaning and everything was back to... Um, pristine condition and they'd vacuumed and they dusted and cleaned the bathrooms and she was you know, really happy with this because you know she did have her cleaner go in but only for you know to do a very cursory look and just to check that the cleaning had been done which it had the next guests go in and within a couple of hours she gets a phone call to say that somebody sat on the sofa and the whole thing collapsed so what it looked like had what it appeared had happened was that the previous guests had broken the sofa um through whatever they were doing and had jerry rigged it back to looking like it was it was perfectly okay um and they had done all this cleaning and created the impression that they were the best guests ever in order to prevent somebody really doing a detailed check. I mentioned that because what our accidental damage protection plan does is prevent that sort of thing from happening and prevent those sorts of surprises because our guests have to tell us while they are at the property if any damage has occurred in order for the accidental damage protection plan to take effect. If they do not do that, then they will be charged for the damage, regardless of whether it was accidental or not, because we haven't been given the opportunity to fix it. So so that's what we do. But let's just go on to this topic of what is damage and when do you charge on a damage deposit? Do you know quite so often 
it comes to this emotional response of how dare they do this to my place. These people have disrespected my property. They've left an awful mess. They've uh, damaged things that should not have been damaged. And we are going to get our own back, basically. We're going to charge them $40 for a damaged lamp because somebody was careless enough to knock it on the floor. This sort of thing happens all the time. And emotion is so often involved. And my take on this is you've got to step back, take the emotion out completely and and look at it from a very pragmatic perspective and and just say, you know, is this the cost of doing business? It may be a high cost of doing business if you're letting something, um, a, a larger piece of damage go. But is it, number one, is it going to cause you stress if you follow up with this, if you, you know, if you start talking about it on Facebook groups and everybody chimes in and tells you what you should and what you shouldn't do and how awful these people are and and starts to get other people get emotional on your behalf and it escalates hugely and all of a sudden this situation that might have been relatively small has suddenly got out of proportion. So that's my take, is take the emotion out, figure out how much it's going to cost you in terms of stress, in terms of time, in terms of money, if you go one way or the other. And you know, so often in our property management business, if we come across an issue of non-accidental damage and the owner makes a claim on us, we actually pay it ourselves. We, we just We don't want the stress. We don't want to spend the time. But we're happy to spend that money because to, to appease the owner. If you're an independent owner yourself, think in those terms. Think how much stress it's going to cause you, how much time it's going to cause you. And is that worth the money you're chasing? Take the emotion out of it. That's my take. So that was my take on what I felt were the five most common questions that I'm hearing on Facebook groups. And as I said at the beginning, it is definitely my own perspective, my take, and it doesn't mean it's right. It means that this is what has worked for my company, in my properties, and with our owner clients. Now, every location is different. Every uh, demographic is different. Your personas, the people that you target, are different. So that is, it, it doesn't mean that what works for me will work for you. However, it, um, it it gave me my opportunity to contribute to those discussions that I haven't been doing on on Facebook. And of course, if you've got any if you've got any questions or if you want to let me know what your take is, please put the comments in the show notes uh, on cottageblogger.com and I'll get to them and uh, and respond. So as far as responding is concerned, I just might like to make an apology for those people who have been trying to get in touch with me over the past few months, and I've been very tardy in getting back to you. Uh, If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know I've had some personal issues. My husband's been extremely ill, and some things were put to the, they were put on the back burner, I guess. You know, we had VRSS to, to build up to as well. And and I wanted, I, I really am committed to getting this podcast out every single week. 
So I'm pleased to say that I was able to do that. VRSS went off without a hitch. But what has suffered perhaps is some of the communication that I've um, uh, that I've not had <laughs> with um, with my listeners and audience, people who have been contacting me. I'm things are really better now. We're very much back to normal. I'm picking up all the pieces, and I think I have caught up. So, thank you very, very much for those of you who have been so patient with me. And and if you do contact me from here on, Heather at CottageBlogger.com, I will endeavour to be back to you much quicker than I have been in the past few months. Again, thanks for your patience. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'm starting a new segment at the end of each uh, episode where I talk to a supplier. You know, this business has so many vendors and suppliers and you get to see them if you go to the conferences. But if you don't, if you're not able to get to VRMA or VRSS or any one of Amy's, Amy Highnotes uh, events, then you don't have the opportunity of meeting these vendors face to face, which is such a great thing to do because you're able to ask them all the questions. When they give you the responses, you can ask your supplementary questions that you may not have thought of if you hadn't been actually talking to them. So I want to give you the opportunity to hear from some of these vendors, hear why they're passionate about the industry, what their products do, what problems they solve, and and give you some insight into what's out there and what's available. So today I'm happy to welcome Rich Lang from Dormacaba. Dormacaba is uh, um, an access, it's access management software, which basically speaking, you know, how people get into your property and the ease in which they can do that. So I'm not going to talk about it. I'm leaving it all to Rich. So without further ado, let's move on over to the conversation. So I'm delighted to have with me today uh, in our first segment of introducing our suppliers. I'm delighted to have Rich Lang of uh, Dormacaba. Um, hi, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And yourself, Heather? Excellent. Thank you very much. Where am I talking to you? Whereabouts are you? I am located in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. And for those uh, individuals that are not familiar with uh, with South Carolina, Pauley's Island is uh, halfway between uh, Myrtle Beach and Charleston. Okay, and I'm definitely not that familiar with that area. It's one of those areas I've never got to. So one day, one day, and I know it's you know it's like the hub of vacation rentals. So it would be good to visit. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's kick off. Um, we we met you guys at um, the Vacation Rental Success Summit, and and it was you know I I spent time talking with you and really interested in your product, and I'd like you to just tell everybody what it is and um, what you do to solve vacation rental owner and manager problems. Okay, great. Well. Let me start by giving an, uh, a brief overview of who Dormacaba is and how we got into, how we migrated into the vacation rental business with the Oracle product solution. First, Dormacaba is a, a global organization. We're one of the top three uh, companies worldwide in access and security solutions. And we are based in uh, based in Europe, but we have quite a bit of concentration in 
and business units in North America, uh, in the United States, in Mexico, as well as in Canada. And part of uh, our business is, is, is various different products for the door openings and solutions. But one of our largest groups is lodging systems. And we've been doing electronic hotel locks since uh, the mid-1980s when uh, they started coming out. And uh, we sell those products for the hotels under the Ilco and SafeLock brand. And then in 2000, uh, we had an opportunity to, to develop products that were designed specifically for the vacation rental market specifically uh, property managers, as well as uh, the VRBO type uh, managers. And we introduced a product called Oracode. And Oracode is a keyless access control system to help property management companies and owners migrate away from keys to control the properties. Uh, it's not just for convenience for the property management companies. It's it's convenience, adds convenience for the owners of the homes, uh, for the guests. It provides greater security, provides the ability to give individual codes to the homeowners, to guests, to staff members, housekeeping, uh, HVAC systems. Uh, all the product is, is geared towards uh, commercial-grade products. They handle the, the weather conditions that the coastal environments will, will put on, the, on hardware in terms of uh, corrosion, uh, humidity, etc. And cold? And, uh, over the, and cold. <laughs> yes, our, our products are, are designed and manufactured in North America, out of Canada. Uh, so we will go to very cold, severe conditions as well as very warm conditions. Excellent. So, I mean, th this is all, always of interest to me. I manage nearly 200 properties, and, um, and they're all individually managed by their owners. So we, we do the, you know, the, the rentals for the owners, but they do their own property management. So, I mean, for, for me, it's like, it's, like okay. herd, it's like herding 200 cats. So everybody has something different. And we have, we have $7,000 a week properties where the key is under the mat. And and others that have really convoluted systems with with sort of high school type um, um, locker boxes, lock boxes that I right. I have never been able to navigate. So I'm trying to move towards um, some form of consistency with with my um, with with my clients. Um, what is it I can tell them that is going to convince them? that they need to invest in this? Well, a couple of things. One of that, that they'd be partnering with a global corporation that's been working in this environment in this vertical market for, for 40 plus years. We have a variety of different product solutions. So depending on where the homeowner is or the property manager is in terms of their financial conditions, in terms of their technical expertise, we have a variety of products that they could start with the basic product and migrate to a more sophisticated product without replacing the locks or the entire system 
as their business uh, grows. So you could start off with basic keyless uh, lock. You can then tie it into a upgrade to a system that will tie into the home's Wi-Fi system or broadband system by adding a controller. You can then add a a system for lack of a better term, home automation to control thermostats, can control door sensors, sensors for pools, pools and spas, anything that uh, you might want to uh, for for cottages and on the lakes in the cold weather, uh, there's sensors for pipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sensors for noise mediation. So they don't need to buy the whole system from us at one time. They could start with the basic and with a system that will be scalable and flexible based on their needs. And uh, all of our products, they will last. Uh, the average life is, is seven-plus years. Uh on the, on the ocean with the salt water, the toughest environments, um, battery life. We get two to three years battery life, so it's relatively maintenance-free. I, I like the idea that you don't have to invest heavily into into the, a, a, a mass system, a big system. At the very outset, you can start with a, a, a smaller unit and then scale it out. Because I know a, a lot of a lot of owners, a lot of the people that listen to this uh, this podcast, and I'm sure you you talk to for those of of you who are who were at VRSS there were 200 there were over 250 people there many of whom were independent owners of one or two properties and those are the property managers of the future so i would correct yeah i would expect that um you know this is the, these are the people who are listening to this um to, to you talking here and thinking well you know i'd like to be able to start at this level and be able to scale up as i buy more properties or take on third-party properties um, myself. What makes you passionate about this industry, Rich? I've been in the access control industry for 30-plus years. I've been involved in the vacation rental market for for the last three and a half years, and uh, I find it a very fun organization. It's a very intriguing business. It's a um, homegrown business in the sense that uh, there's many many family-owned businesses that, that are growing, that have desires to grow, and there's a lot of corporations that are coming into the business, so it's expanding, it's changing. And um, it, it just, uh, every time I'm, I'm at a seminar, I learn just as, I learn probably more about the industry and the people that are involved in the industry, and that makes it fun. And with the order code solution, we're, we're able to hopefully educate the different homeowners, uh, those that are starting out with one or two properties, managing a couple others for family members or friends, reminding them and educating them that it is a business and that they have to start uh, looking at things from a, from a business perspective versus a residential perspective, uh, handling liability, uh, security issues for guests, homeowners, employees, and that we have a solution that that will work for that individual homeowner that wants to grow to 50 units, to five units, to 100 units. And as you said, Heather, you're, you're an example of that, uh, of that migration path, the way you started out a few years ago and mm-hmm. the number of properties you're currently managing. 
Yes, it's what I what I say and, to, uh, to, to every, everybody that's uh, that that was there at VRSS. You know, you might have I I was there fifteen years ago with one property, and and look at where we are now. Um, look at where people like Steve Milo are now. Uh, with with you know he started with four or five. So uh, so yes, we're, we're we're all in the this crazy growing business, and as you say, it changes. It's changing daily at the moment. It's rapidly expanding, and. I, I hesitate to think where we're going to be in five years from now, but I expect that uh, that Dorma, Dorma Carver is going to be around then. Uh, we plan on being around, <laughs> and, and what we'd like to be is uh, we like to be somebody's expert, some of your customers' expert in uh, uh, in access control mm -hmm. um, and why they should be using a commercial-grade product versus a residential product, and over a period of time, they will be saving money and talking about in terms of migration paths. And even if they don't buy my product, we'd, we'd like to uh, talk with the individuals and educate them on the, on the different options that are out there so they can make the best business decisions for themselves and their homeowners. So where do, so, so if somebody's interested, Rich, how do they get hold of you or get, get hold of somebody at Dorma Carver to talk about the solutions? They can go to our webpage. I'll, I'll put a link to your web page on the show notes, so anybody interested can oh, okay. can go go to the show notes and take the direct link from there. Mm -hmm. They could also reach out to me uh, at uh, via email, which is uh, Richard Lang L A N G at dormacaba dot com. Rich, thank you so much for joining me and to um, and, and talking about the Dormacaba. Um, products and how they benefit our owners and managers it's been great talking with you same here thank you very much heather for the opportunity well that, that's a little bit more uh, uh, more knowledge you have now about dorma carver um and uh, you know if you have any access issues or if you'd like to discuss uh how you can um solve any problems that you have with access and with door locks and it was interesting that i didn't realize that uh, that dorma carver did more than just door locks um so it seems like they are moving or they're already in more of the home automation space and and i'm i'm really loving home automation you know, in building my new property at the moment we are we're moving we're, you know, it, it's going to be fully automated and i'm so excited about this um so, uh, so I'll be I'll be telling ev telling all about how how that's working. So, uh, watch this space. I'll be doing an episode, or in fact, a blog post in the next uh, few weeks about the property I'm building and the uh, the two bedroom uh, apartment that's in my home in my new home that will be um, on on the vacation rental market. Um, from around about November onwards. So there's a lot of things I'm doing there because it is being purpose-built as a vacation rental. So that I'll be sharing with you. So that's it for today. I'm really happy that, uh, that you were able to join me and uh, look forward to being with you again next week. This episode of Vacation Rental Success is over, but don't worry, Heather will be back soon. Want more great resources? Visit cottageblogger.com for tips, tricks, downloads, and strategies to help you achieve profit from your vacation rental business.